0: Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 42. Talking about a lot of things. First, I've got some feedback on the prices of lumber in COVID. We're going to talk specifically about the prices when it comes to the thicknesses of rough lumber. Talk a little bit about urban lumber. A little plea to not burn down your shops, folks. Some talk on moisture meters quoting lumber and finally I'm going to wrap up the show with a question on steamed versus unsteamed walnut you know while we're at it we'll talk about some of the other steam species that you can run into so yeah it's it's kind of an email q a but i tried to pull things together into somewhat of a theme here first i do want to say thank you to all my new patrons uh, patreon.com slash lumber update that's the place to go if you're interested in sponsoring this show uh, had several new patrons this week. Always, always appreciate that. And uh, got some great questions from you guys as well. In fact, all the content from this show is coming directly from. Patreon supporters. So thank you, as always. If you are interested, again, go to Lumber Update, or excuse me, Patreon.com slash Lumber Update, and you can be a supporter of the show there. But more importantly, if you want to submit questions, have questions about the lumber industry, about lumber, about whatever, go to LumberUpdate.com. There's a form you can fill out to submit questions there. You can also just email me directly at LumberUpdate at gmail.com. And that is what Chris did. Chris actually sent in a voice memo uh, about the COVID lumber prices, specifically as it relates to softwood. And those of you know, I work for primarily a hardwood company. I work for a hardwood company. We have a little bit of softwood, but we actually sell them like hardwoods because they're very high-end specialty softwoods. Chris, however, Chris works in the softwood industry. So he's got some firsthand knowledge and some feedback about COVID and how it's affecting your lumber prices. Take it away, Chris.
1: Hey, Shannon, this is Chris from West Virginia. I was just calling to uh, talk about uh, listening to episode 37, the COVID lumber prices episode you have posted up. And uh, being that I work in the softwood side of the industry. I thought I would uh, come back with some responses. Uh, you hit it mostly on the head. Uh, COVID has been a terrible thing for us, uh, partially because of the reduced capacity that you talked about, partially because mills shut down for two weeks at a time as it takes its toll through the staff there. There's uh, just not been any easing in the supply for us. Um, we're seeing trading start to slow down and prices flattening, but they're still headed north. Uh, the biggest issue that you'll uh, find, I think you noted there, that you're not going to expect to see any, any decreases in pricing for the next few months. And I, I completely agree with you. Uh, even if pricing starts to take a break now, you're still buying lumber four to six weeks out. A lot of mills, when they're quoting orders right now, you're looking into November for a delivery. So that uh, that's just going to be problematic for a while, I believe. Uh, you're talking about uh, 80% up, that is, on dimensional stuff. If you start looking at sheet goods like 716 uh, 4 4x8 OSB, we're looking on the order of uh, up 200%. So what used to be an $8 sheet of OSB is now a $24 sheet of OSB and that's where you're seeing a lot of impact on house prices. Um, as far as the treaters, uh, yes, you're right, they do only have so much capacity. What I've noticed is that they can't get the lumber to feed that capacity. So southern yellow pines remained kind of elusive. It was hit particularly hard. Uh, of course, it's coming out of the southern states. A lot of uh, in the northern half of the country, a lot of the lumber's coming from Canada uh, or at least northern states. So that spruce, pine, fir blend Still hard on pricing, still elusive, not as bad as the Southern Yellow Pine has been. It's starting to let up on the SYP. Uh, The narrows aren't too bad to get. Beams are a pain. So also wanted to uh, let you know that uh, you're talking about the price increases uh, not letting up. I'm looking at projections and predictions in the industry, and they're suggesting that demand for OSB is going to continue to increase For 2021 and 2022 over the demand for 2020. So I'm concurring completely there. Also uh, wanted to let you know that I am seeing a shift in production on things like OSP. Again, this is important more so in the softwood side of things. A shift to what you would call value-added items, where you may see a shortage of the commodity-grade stuff And more presence of your higher end sorts of uh, AdvanTech or ZipWall kind of products on the market being available. So anyway, just wanted to uh, add a little bit to that. I kind of live and breathe it. And I wanted to thank you for your show.
0: Oh, geez, Chris, I hope you're okay there. Sounded like maybe you dropped your phone right at the end or something fell off the desk. But anyway, let's hope everything's okay. So great, great, great feedback from Chris. Thank you so much for I almost said calling in. What is this a radio show? Thanks for calling in. Our next caller, uh great feedback there. I'm um, also particularly interested in his last point there about the value-added products. I am seeing this also on the hardwood side of things, and we've been seeing this for a while. I don't know whether this is really a COVID thing or just the state of the market because raw materials and this could be lumber, this could be steel. Raw materials tend to be pretty, pretty volatile when it comes to market shifts and changes. They also tend to be at the bottom of the pile of, you know, what, you know, as, as uh, margins get pressed and somebody says, look, we've got to increase our margins. They go to their buyer and the buyer says, well, I can try to buy it cheaper. And then, then they go to their buyer and try to buy it cheaper. And the people actually supplying the raw materials are the ones that get all the pressure from above. And that can cause some problems. Where companies are having more success in maintaining their margins is providing those value-added services, or what you might also call transformation services. So in my case, instead of selling rough sawn hardwoods, we might actually sell, you know, the most basic can be an S2S product, a surfaced on two sides product, or an S4S molded product with maybe eased E4E eased on four edges, or maybe a decking product that's S4S E4E with grooved, um, or crown molding you know um we run run a crown molding in walnut or run a crown molding in sapeli or something like that taking that rough sawn sapeli and transforming it into a i don't want to say finished product but near finished product that's ready to install that's a value added service and the fluctuation of the raw material of sapeli is not seen as much to the consumer whether the consumer be a homeowner or the consumer be a contractor looking to buy a large volume of it the price that they would have paid or the price they would have paid to produce it themselves. You know, the labor hours, the, the, the actual time to to get the material, all of the scheduling and all the stuff that goes into that. There's quite a bit of value when a general contractor can call their lumber supplier and say, instead of shipping me rough materials, ship me this to the job site on this particular day because my trim carp- carpenter will be there and be ready. This is the same thing where you're talking about actually branded products like the Evantech uh, zip wall type products, or in my world, when we're talking about, well, decking in general, but also finished siding like Shishugibon or torch siding, um, any number of branded decking products, all of those things are brand name terms for a raw lumber that's been transformed into something. And that is a lot more stable these days. Certainly COVID may have something to do with that. Um, manufacturing wise a lot of the inventory to produce those products was already in hand for the companies producing them so maybe we'll we will see a spike but you find that the transformation costs those value added costs add so much to the end price tag that a slight fluctuation of the raw material kind of insulates that from the final price so i don't know that's some some Guesstimating just based on what Chris said, but it's a particularly interesting point. I like seeing that from his side of things, because as I said, I'm seeing it on the hardwood side as well. Always love it when folks who have an industry experience uh, write in and share. So please, if you are one of those people listening and you've got input, well, let's hear it. Uh, the listeners, myself, we all can benefit from it. Thanks again, Chris. So this brings me into my emails. I got an email from Mike, who. Uh, says his local hardwood dealer charges more per board foot based on thickness. And is this a common practice? Absolutely. So th- the point is I mean, of course, it's more because it's more board feet. But what Mike is saying is say, you know, you're buying cherry for $5 a board foot. Well, uh, four quarter cherry for $5 a board foot. Eight quarter cherry would be twice the amount of board feet. So should it be ten dollars a board foot, and what he's finding that it's actually more like twelve dollars a board foot, the per board foot price is still higher than because of that thickness. Now, that's kind of a bad example in the cherry market because it doesn't always happen as much. A lot of times you do see a one-for-one thing there. But certain species, it can be a lot more difficult not only to cut thicker cuts and to get to meet a grade, but it can be very difficult to dry thicker cuts. And this is especially true when you get above eight quarter. When you start moving into nine, 10, 12, and certainly 16 quarter, the drying is a lot more intensive and a lot more prone to defect it's a lot riskier in other words and the waste factor can be a lot higher so if you throw 10,000 board feet of 16 quarter into a kiln and you can only get you know 8,000 board feet out or hmm, more likely 6,000 board feet out there's a huge waste factor in there that has to be accounted for because there's a certain dollar amount that went in and that same dollar amount's coming out but less volume you do the math um, same thing applies with the, um, the difficult-to-get type stuff. So you take a species like walnut that is not a clear tree. It's a field tree that branches early. It's got a lot of knots, usually very gnarly grain. And trying to cut a thicker board out of that can be really difficult. You can maybe squeeze a four-quarter board between a couple of knots and and still get a good clear piece But eight quarter becomes harder and harder. And as I said, with with 16 quarter, it becomes harder. Moreover, the species that have those defects, those knots and curly swirly grain, that becomes even harder to dry because of that unpredictable grain. So it's a cost of production and it's a very significant cost of production change to maintain that. The last thing I'll say is the turn rate on some of that material, how fast it sells, how long does it sit on that shelf will vary a lot the number one material that people are searching for, by and large, is going to be four-quarter when you're talking about rough sawn lumber. Certain species are going to do better in eight-quarter than they do in four-quarter, but when you take a look at all the species across lumberyards, four-quarter is the most common size. That's the stuff that's turning. So you bring that material in knowing that you can move it through the shelves and you keep inventory turning, keep the money flowing because you're paying money to bring the material in or to dry the material. You want to get money back in order to continue to buy more material. Well, if you spend a lot of money on inventory in 12 quarter and it sits on your shelves forever and ever and ever, you're getting no return on that. So you you up the price so that when you do get some, you can kind of recoup some of that because you may not sell any more of it for a while. And and all of these things play into that thickness. So short answer to this is yes, Mike. It is a very common practice. And I think you will find that that's not just in the lumber industry. Anytime you've got a product that is more risky to produce and has a slow return rate is going to not just be a one-to-one price increase. Uh, Next question comes from Theo. And I've actually heard from Theo a couple times on urban lumber. Um, He is actually working with a company that's starting up an urban lumber business. And he asked, can this market shortage on traditional species create an opening for urban woods sourced from fallen city trees? So I believe this was in response to a white oak shortage episode I talked about. But this also can fall in line with what we're talking about with COVID, where Prices are going up because um, manufacturers don't have the material. They're having trouble getting the material in. So Theo, this is a yes and a no answer. Certainly it provides an alternative to the traditionally sourced trees. But you also have to think about city trees are not grown for boards. They're not grown for lumber. So they're not pruned as such. They're not, um, they're not grown in, in rows and forests. So they branch very early. They are often encouraged to branch early to produce shade and they branch often and quickly. They also tend to grow, um, in in uh what's the word i'm looking for shallow shallow soil you think about uh all the trees on the sidewalk like that that little bit of grass between the front step of your house and the um to drive uh, the, the road or maybe that spot where your mailbox is. Think in a, in, a, in a city like New York City, there's always that little patch of grass and those little gardens and things like that. The trees that are there are kind of crammed in between asphalt and concrete and they grow in, in um, very shallow soil. They often don't have the same root structures and that will certainly affect how the tree grows. The tree has to branch out in order to get more light, to get more nutrients, things like that. So the grain structure is gonna be very, very different. You're gonna find it very difficult to get what would be graded as an FAS board from these trees. Now, for the furniture makers, the hobbyist woodworkers like myself, we love that stuff. We love that character, that figure, we think it's great. For a guy that wants to put up molding in a million dollar home, that is awful. Figure is a defect and it's also really difficult to get the long lengths that he needs you think about putting crown molding up in a room and if that master bedroom is 20 feet by 25 feet you want to try to put up as few pieces of molding along that 25 foot and that 20 foot run knowing that you're probably going to have to put two pieces there but you don't want to have to have scarf joints you want to try to have a seamless transition there so you're going to go for as long a material as possible trying to get 15 16 18 20 foot long clear pieces out of a city tree that is not specifically groomed to be a lumber producing tree is nigh on impossible and i specifically say clear because imagine a board that has a knot right in the center of it and running that through a six head molder and getting a crown profile out of it that knot is a bomb waiting to happen when it hits that molder knife it's going to tear out like crazy and oftentimes can actually split the board in half when it runs through there, you know, in my shop, if I'm running through my planer, you know, I'll tweak the knob a little and I'll run it through and take a thirty-second of an inch off. I can afford to do that because in my case, time isn't money; it's my it's my pastime. In a molding in a millwork shop where you've got a thousand linear feet of a particular profile to run, you got to get it through, and there's no time to do that. So you set up this this molder to produce one pass. That's why there are six heads on that machine so that you can run a board through that has maybe been S2S to seven eighths of an inch or a full inch and you want to run it through and out the other side comes your finished profile. So maybe you've got one molar head that is reducing the thickness a little, another molar head that's cutting the deep part of the crown, but maybe not cutting it all the way. The second molder head is cutting that deep part of the crown to its final depth. But this board is going through massive transformation as it goes through in one single pass. And if you can't do it in one pass, then somebody of the other end of that molder has to catch it, walk it around to the beginning, or continue to stack the entire pallet. Then they've got to wheel that entire pallet around and run it through again. And every chance you're gonna to have to reset your molder, reset your knives for a deeper cut in order to get the finish. Well, setting up a six head molder, it can be a 10 minute process. It can be a 35 minute process. Depends upon the molder. Depends upon the skill of the molder operator. It depends on a lot of things. But 30 minutes, that machine is not running. Or 10 minutes, that machine is not running. Nothing is happening. That lumber is just sitting there. That's a problem. And in many millwork houses where hundreds of thousands of feet of, of something is run every single day, that is a major, major problem. So you got to have clear stuff for this material. You also kind of have to have clear stuff for flooring. There's a lot more rustic uh, flooring out there these days, but the flooring can get away with a lower grade because it can use narrow and short. But a lot of times you're still looking for clear material. Knots in a floor can cause problems. Certainly finishing becomes a real problem. It also becomes a place for dust and dirt to collect and all that fun stuff. So while we see a lot more rustic grade flooring, usually those knots are filled in with epoxy of some sort. So you get an even smooth floor. Well, those defects, that costs money. Epoxy is expensive. Epoxy is more expensive than the lumber itself. So a lot of commercial industries, they just cannot deal with these city trees, these yard trees, these urban trees, these um, ornamental species, what you might call them. The market for those is in the niche. It's in you know tabletops and maybe possibly countertops. But the huge lion's share of the lumber consumers out there are the molding, flooring companies, siding companies, things like that. And it's going to be real hard to use those city trees for that. Great question, Theo. Thanks for that. This one, a little bit out of left field, but I've heard, I'm not kidding, I've heard from nine people in the last two weeks who had questions about kiln drying their own lumber who have come back to me and said that their shop burnt down either fully or they had a fire that really freaked them out because the kiln that they were using caught stuff on fire and caused a lot of problems. So granted, I work for a commercial lumber supplier. We have seven dry kilns, actually 12 dry kilns now. Um, you know, they're huge, gigantic dehumidification kilns. <sighs> Drying lumber is not something to be taken lightly, folks. You're taking a fire-causing substance, and you're drying it out. Um, You have got to have just the right amount of moisture introduced in there, or you're certainly going to overdry your lumber. You're You're gonna ruin the lumber. You're gonna case harden it. But that moisture also helps to keep things like fires from breaking out. Even then, fires still happen in dry kilns, which is why if you were to come to my lumberyard and look at the dry kilns, they look like an oven. Well, they are an oven, but they're insulated and fire retardant on the inside. So if a fire does break out, the best thing we can do is close that thing up and deprive it of oxygen and just let it cook. And if, I mean, if a fire breaks out in a dry kiln, it's pretty much uncontrollable. If you open the door on that, if you've ever seen the movie Backdraft, oh yeah, it's a bomb. So it's really scary stuff and kind of, I almost hate saying this, but I feel like saying, guys, leave the kiln drying to the professionals. If you are producing lumber of your own, you're sawing it with an Alaskan mill, or maybe you've built Mac Cremona's bandsaw mill or whatever, you're producing your own lumber. Do you really need to kiln dry it? What is it you're using it for? Why do you need it so quickly that you can't air dry it? I recognize the rule of thumb is one inch of thickness per one year of drying. Frankly, that's BS. This stuff will dry a lot faster and depending on how you're using it, you don't have to have it at 6%. In fact, air dried lumber is a revelation. If you've ever worked with air dried, you pick a piece of kiln dried and a piece of air dried, pick a species, maple. Oh my God, it's a revelation. I love air dried material and I'm a a hand tool guy, so of course I love this stuff, but it's really hard to get air dried lumber. So if you are sawing your own boards, and maybe your thought is, I could sell this. Capitalize on the niche, man. Don't, don't kiln dry your stuff because now all you're doing is competing with lumber yards like the one I work for. And our ability to kiln dry, I guarantee you, is going to be better than yours because cumulatively with our kiln operators, we have like 300 years of experience in drying lumber. We've got the really, really high-end kilns. We know what we're doing. And compared to the small guy who's drying it in the batches, mixed species drying, not total control over the drying, there's going to be a higher risk factor there. But frankly, if I knew some folks locally that were air drying their material, I would be buying it. I don't have to buy lumber because I work for a lumber company, but I would go out of my way to buy air dried walnut or to buy air dried cherry or air dried oak or something like that. There's also a market for green material. But say you want it to be kiln dried. You know, stand it up on end right after you cut it, let the free water drain out for a couple of days, then sticker it and stack it. And, and you'd be amazed at how quickly the stuff will dry. Certainly it's gonna depend upon your local climate, but the thing that I want people to carry away from this is kiln drying is not some sort of magic cure for wood movement there is some stability gained when you drop the moisture preternaturally low, below 8%. And that's caused because you actually hardened the cell walls a little bit. The stability that's gained by doing that is not that wood stops moving. It's just that it moves slower because it takes longer to absorb moisture. So shorter term seasonal changes, passing storms, a storm for a couple of days won't really affect the lumber that much because it takes a while for those hardened cell walls to soak up the extra moisture. Likewise, it sheds that extra moisture much faster because it's just, it doesn't have a spongy texture anymore. It's that, that, toast versus untoasted bread analogy. You know, you can't really inject a lot of moisture into toast, but you can inject moisture into untoasted bread relatively easily. This is something that that makes it a little bit more stable, but it's stable is almost the wrong word. It slows down its movement. Air-dried lumber is just as stable. And frankly, if you are building with wood movement in mind, it does not matter if it's kiln-dried or if it's air-dried. It's all going to move, and that's fine you know, you should be perfectly okay with wood moving because you've constructed it in such a way to allow wood movement. If you're worried about warping and cupping, then you construct it in such a way as to restrict the wood movement, but not, or excuse me, to restrain the wood movement, but not restrict it. First thing that comes to mind is a breadboard in. How do you keep a tabletop flat? You put a breadboard in on the end. It doesn't prevent the wood from expanding and contracting, but it does kind of hold it into one geometric plane. So Again, please, 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 people, unless you really know what you're doing when it comes to kiln drying, and unless you've really put some thought into the kiln setup you have and your kiln is not somewhere where it can catch on fire and burn down your house, your kiln should be a standalone structure as much as possible. Leave it to the pros, folks. I, I just, I don't see the need to have to kiln dry your stuff. It's not gonna get it to you that much faster and the risks that come with it are scary as all hell. So there's my, my PSA. I only bring that up. And, and those of you who did email me going, oh, he's talking about me. Yeah, I'm talking about you, but I'm talking about eight other people, nine people over a course of a couple of weeks have had this problem. That's, that's pretty crazy to me. Please don't burn down your shops. Don't burn down your houses. Go with air dry, man. It's lovely stuff. (laughs) So while we're talking about drying, Matt had a question about moisture meters <clears throat> he says, um, uh, I'm a self-professed tool nerd. So my question is, uh, what kind of moisture meters are used in the professional lumber yard? Do your laser vision scanners measure moisture as wood is being sorted out of container or do all the yard guys keep a Wagner and a pouch on the belt and check boards as needed? So, um... No, the guys on the yard do not keep a uh, Wagner on, in their pouch. First of all, the the moisture meters we use are pin moisture meters. We don't use pinless. I have a couple of guys, um, not actually folks that work in the yard, but a couple of the sales guys I know that have pinless meters that will occasionally take them out to job sites if there are claims or questions about was this dried enough. But on the yard itself, we use lignomat. Um, uh, uh moisture meters that have pin gauges and you stick it on the end of the board and you drive that sucker in with a sledgehammer. So those pins go in three to four inches deep and gather uh, a moisture meeting, moisture reading. That's what we do when we pull the material out of the containers. Our vision tally does not measure moisture, although I don't think it would be that far of a leap to see that a system like that could gather moisture. There's no reason why it couldn't, you know, the same reason that you can radio frequency dry a material, you ought to be able to get a moisture reading off of that. And there probably are machines out there that do that. Ours does not. What we do is we we, we literally say we punch it because that's what you do. You put the lignum out on the end and you punch it with a sledgehammer and you gather a moisture reading from there. The next thing we do is we will pull a board or two from the middle of that pack. And then we will cut a sample from the middle of that board. So basically we're sacrificing the board. You've got 12 foot long sapili. We're going to cut a sapili board in half and remove like a foot section out of the middle of it so that we've got not only a board in the middle of the pack, but the middle of that board in the middle of the pack. We will then uh, punch it, grab a moisture on it, and then we will bake it and suck out all the moisture. Um, sorry, let me back up. We punch it, grab the moisture, but we also weigh it then we put it in the oven and we suck out all the moisture, bring it down to 0%, and then we weigh it again. And by looking at the difference, you can calculate the true moisture reading much more accurately than any moisture meter can. But you have to sacrifice a board to do that. But then we can we do that from several places within the pack, and then we can get an average of what the moisture is on that particular pack. That's the first step. That lumber may be stacked and may be ready to go on six or something like that, and that may continue elsewhere in the yard. But one of the first things we're doing is that oven test and that punching to make sure that what we ordered is what we got, or make sure that the material has been sitting out in the air dry yard, what status it is as far as dryness before we put it into the kiln. Because we want to have an idea of those moisture numbers before we throw it in the kiln, because you have to adjust the drying recipe, the schedule, if you will, from there. So yeah, it's a little bit more destructive, but when you're dealing with as much lumber as we do and as much lumber that comes in out of container, the best way to do it and the only way to really get a measurement of the gooey you know, center of those boards is by cutting them in half and pulling a sample from the middle. Okay, so Benjamin wrote to me about quoting and he said, uh, due to current marking conditions, uh, uh, sorry, he went to a lumber yard and he was looking for a quote. At the bottom of the quote, and I quote, it said, Due to current market conditions, our industry is facing, our quotes are only guaranteed for 24 hours. So, what Benjamin wanted to know is is this common practice? You know, I'd love to hear from a number of people to talk about why they do it this way, how lumber pricing and why they can't honor a quote for more than one day. It seems very extreme, the cost of lumber. Is the cost of lumber really running wild like Venezuelan inflation, or is this an overrotation on the response to the pandemic? This is not in response to the pandemic. This is pretty common. 24 hours does seem kind of quick, but you will very often see 24 to 48 hours at the absolute high end would be five days, one business week. This is not so much because of the cost uh, the, the cost of the lumber, but this is due to the demand. If you come in and say, I want a thousand board feet of cherry, that salesperson is going to look at their stock and, first of all, verify that we can fulfill that order. Because, you know, sometimes it's a thousand board feet of the cherry, sometimes it's 500 board feet of four quarter is 6868, six, eight, and 500 feet of eight quarter 6868, six, eight, or, you know, four and wider, or something like that. We have to double check and make sure we have that because. You know, if it is a an, 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 not an unusual but a, a complex order that has multiple widths and lengths and multiple thicknesses, we can't just look and say, okay, we've got a thousand board feet of eight quarter out there. We'll get it out of that, because if we have to end up ripping boards down or planing boards in order to get the finished thickness and the finished width, there can be a hell of a lot of waste there. So what the good lumberyard is going to do is look thoroughly at your quote. your different light items and try to find the closest match possible with the inventory we have that can mean picking and choosing from multiple SKUs, multiple packs of lumber out on the yard when that is done someone is actually going out looking through an inventory system and saying okay this is here at least in our yard that gets handed to a runner out on the yard who goes and physically verifies and takes a look at the material because one thing a printout and an inventory document can't really tell you is what does it look like? What is the grade like? How long is it? Well, we can't tell how long it's been there, but those physical inspection things need to happen. So that guy in the yard is is actually pulling those boards and saying, we've got this, we've got this, we've got this. I don't have this, but I can get it out of this with... Um, And then a lot of times the salesperson will come back to you and say, I can do this, this, and this. I can't really do this, but here's my alternative. And that's that's why they're saying that, because someone has physically inspected that lumber and checked and come back with, this is not going to quite work. Because of all that, this is a unique order. The material has been set aside and earmarked for your quote. So they say, we can't honor this for more than 24 hours because there are other people calling in and quoting it. And if we have earmarked this and essentially pulled it from our stock, we can't just let it sit there for a week, two weeks because we probably could have sold it to two or three other people that may have called after that. And that is why we need to honor those quotes. This is a highly unique material that you're, you're pulling. And you know I should say the lumberyards that have a longer quote honoring period. Again, it's not so much the price that they're honoring, it's the actual availability of that inventory. And I should say, if someone does come in and buys that because you waited too long, well, they might still be able to fulfill your order, but it might be of a higher grade. You know, before we were filling it with with FAS, which I know could be the highest grade, but we might've been able to pull it from our superior stock or our pattern grade stock. We might now have to rather pull it from superior or pattern grade or stock that's earmarked for certain applications in order to fulfill that order. And guess what? The cost of that is different. So yes, lumber prices are volatile, but when we buy lumber, the cost is always the same. The cost is not going to change in our inventory system. which is is also a problem because if somebody comes and cherry picks all the nicest stuff out of that material, there's still the same cost associated, but there might actually be a lower quality to what's left in that particular pack. But that cost is still the same. So your quote changing or the ability to honor the quote for a short period of time has very little to do with that cost and all to do with the availability and the possible disservice we might do to other customers who call in two days later, three days later, and we're still waiting on hearing back from you. Fortunately, it's just something that we can't do because of the u- unique nature of lumber. Hope that helps, Benjamin. It's, it's, it's tough. I understand it sounds kind of harsh, but when you think of it in that terms, it also sounds kind of harsh to keep a lumber yard on the hook, waiting for you, to, for you to get back to them three, four, five days later. Okay, finally, Kurt wrote in and asked about walnut. He said, could you discuss the difference of steamed walnut versus non-steamed and why I might want to use one or the other? So the simple answer is steamed walnut is more uniform in color. Certainly there is still sapwood and there is still heartwood in steamed walnut, but the lines are blurred. Literally, they are blurred from heartwood to sapwood. Whereas an an unsteamed piece of walnut will have a very stark contrast and, and a very stark line from brown heartwood to creamy white sapwood and steamed, you'll see dark brown kind of turn to lighter brown, turn to kind of a beige, turn into the cream color eventually. That line is heavily blurred. Like somebody used charcoal and a pencil drawing and wetted their thumb and rubbed it over the line. They're blurring those lines. The process of steaming walnut is injecting it with moisture. It's kind of like a kiln, but you're raising the relative humidity up to 100%. So there's no drying it goes on. And the, the, the humidity must be must be at 100%, or there actually will be some drying. You're injecting this very, very hot um, steam, and a lot of times the steam is actually run through a water bath to make sure that it's very, very wet steam and not a drier steam, aka 100% relative humidity in that kiln. That steam is then kind of force injected into lumber. And this is very much like steam bending. No, it is steam bending lumber. If you've ever done any steam bending, you put it in a steam box, you cook it until the lignin, the fibers become pliable and allows you to bend it around a form. Then as it dries around the form, it hardens in place and it holds that shape. This is the same thing that's happening. But as you're forcing that hot air through, you're kind of, um, you're causing the, the chemicals in the wood, the tannins and the various extractives in that walnut to react and oxidize and it will uh, change the color. air dried excuse me, unsteamed walnut tends to have more of a greenish tinge to it. It will have a lot more variegation, purples and grays and browns and some reds and oranges um, and, and green. That all mellows out because that, that moisture is forced through, it reacts with a lot of the chemicals, but then it also kind of bleeds through into the sapwood and that's what causes that blurring of the line between heartwood and sapwood. But, there's lots and lots and lots of air bubbles inside of wood. All of those pores are filled with air. Forcing that moist steam in there kind of causes those pores to open up. It's like going into a sauna and it forces um, all of the other extractors and things kind of forces it up to the surface. That sap, in other words, is forced up to the surface and the byproduct of of a walnut steaming factory is nasty sludge. It's, it's, it's not a clear water that's coming out. It's this dark brown, nasty thing. And that again is kind of leaching out those extractives. And that's, what's pulling out that variegation and color, but what's also causing that really extractives, extractives, think of them as dye. It's pulling that dye and running that dye across the sapwood, which is what's also darkening that sapwood and gives you that more um, consistent brown color. Now, The drawback to this, if you've ever seen Unsteamed Walnut, is there is a lot of character in Unsteamed Walnut. As I said, a lot of different color. This goes back to the question that Theo had about urban lumber. For the hobbyist, for the the one-off furniture maker that's looking for character, this is good stuff. For the molding manufacturer, for the flooring manufacturer, for the siding manufacturer... Those that color variation, those figures, the defects, it sticks out like a sore thumb and you want a more uniform looking material. Plus, it will increase your yield. If you can blur that line between heartwood and sapwood and add an extra inch of width to that board, it's going to increase your yield a little bit. Now, the one thing that you could say is that the strength is slightly compromised in steamed walnut, and I do mean slightly compromised. Because when you do soften up those fibers with that steam, you're breaking down some of the chemical bonds. All of that oxidation, all that uh, leaching out of the dyes, it breaks down some of the strength a little. So technically, kiln dry, or excuse me, I keep saying kiln dried, steamed walnut can be a little bit weaker than unsteamed walnut, but I don't really think it makes that big of a difference in the long run because it's not like, walnut's not really being used as framing material. It's not really being used in structural applications, even if it was you could compensate by thickness and, and you know, making a heavier statter beam in order to do that. But here again, walnut's well, a wee bit expensive to timber frame with, so it's just not coming up very much. Um, Beech is often steamed. Um, you will sometimes see cherry steam for the same reason. Here again, both of these species are not really used for structural purposes, so the slight loss of strength due to that, that softening of the fibers is not really something that we really need to worry about. I just bring it up in case somebody asks because... It's common, you know, that when you steam it, you're going to break down some of that stuff and cause issues. Short answer again, you've got a more uniform color in walnut. The drawback is you've got a more uniform color in walnut. Walnut is a truly beautiful wood, but I'm saying that from the one-off furniture hobbyist perspective, from the perspective of uh, someone that sells commercial lumber and the number of people who send back lumber, because it's slightly different in color from the 28 boards next to it. Walnut steaming is a very, very good thing in order to blend that and unify all that. So yeah, if you ever get an opportunity to visit a walnut steaming plant, it's very interesting. Just bring nose plugs. Woo! (laughs) Byproduct of that stuff is nasty. Alrighty, folks. I think that does it for today. Again, if you have questions, please go to lumberupdate.com, fill out the form, ask a question, or just email me directly, lumberupdate at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram, Instagram at LumberUpdate, and you can message me with questions or just comment on my posts there as well. I look forward to answering them. And please, 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 if you like the show, consider sponsoring it. Patreon.com slash LumberUpdate. Enough of me. Go buy some lumber, folks.